O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to hear my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Time to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for these sad words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Come, Spirit, work in us. Meet us in the sadness, for we love you, and we are loved by you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here at Denver Press. Uh, uh, this morning, as you just heard, today is about sadness and despondency, and it's going to be hard and sad, and so it's really appropriate and important, even, that I begin up front by telling you about your God who authored this precious song. And it's important because I never want you to lose sight of this. That the God of this universe, who designed you and made you, that same God, he is not clumsy. He is not superficial. He is never surprised, nor is he capricious. He is not foolish. He is wise. He is perfectly wise. And he loves you. And you got to keep that 
right at the front of your heart. Because today we're studying the saddest psalm. You know, when you read the psalms, uh, even the sad ones, the psalms of lament, even those ones, they always kind of end with this sort of silver lining, right? There's always this little grace that comes. But this morning, that grace never comes. It just ends in sadness. You know, I... I've said before that our, the Psalms are like the Spotify playlist, right? They're the playlist of ancient Israel. And if you were to play your own playlist, right, in your car as you're driving, uh, there'd be all kinds of songs that would come up, and they would have different sounds, brighter sounds, tones of confidence and gratitude and celebration and hope. But then there'd be other songs, right, that show up, that play. They'd be sad songs, tones of darkness, maybe some minor chords. We're going to get a song with minor chords this morning. It's important that as we think about this text that you remember that it is God himself who put Psalm 88 in the Bible and on our hearts. See, the Bible is not unaware of the nature of suffering and sadness and despondency. And in fact, the Bible is incredibly realistic because, listen to me, not everyone gets a happy ending in this world. They don't. There is a real misery that some of us have to walk in this life to the very end with no happy ending. People that you love, and that's their story. And however sad this psalm is, though, there is a grace in its realistic outlook, in its authenticity. There's a, a real honesty about suffering and sadness in this world. And it, that's important because there are other kinds of responses to sadness in this world, right? Like there's the Eastern outlook that, th- that says that suffering is not real, it's just an illusion, That physical brokenness can actually just be transcended and escaped. There's even this kind of weird Western religious outlook. Um, I dare some of you might have even grown up in this tradition. And it says something like this. "If If you just had enough faith, if you just prayed enough, you wouldn't suffer. Your troubles would go away. Like, if you're just good enough, if you just performed, if you memorized enough Bible, this wouldn't be happening. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. It's actually very realistic. And some Christians face deep troubles, unrelieved troubles that never go away in this life. And there's not always a happy ending. In Psalm 88, sees that person. And so it's so good that God gives us these sad words because they need to form us because very well-intentioned Christians will say the most awful things to people who are in the valley. And we become impatient with our brothers and sisters who are in a dark place and they just can't come out of it. I mean, these are people who, who they trust God. They, they believe in him and they trust on his promises. But they're having a tough time getting there. 
and they can't seem to come out of this despair. Their hearts can't line up with what their brains know to be true. There's like no alignment. There's a fracture between their hearts and their brains. And it's so lonely. It's so lonely. And then when that person comes to church and all they get are like sort of happy, clappy songs, it just it makes the loneliness even more acute. And so we ask, where can Christians who are suffering seemingly terminal sadness, where can they, where can those brothers and sisters go to sing? And if that's you, you get Psalm 88. You get Psalm 88. And it's filled with these really important truths about this life and about this broken world that we, we must learn. And so for the sufferer, if that's you, you get to think about the nature of your melancholy this morning. And for the one who is walking with the suffering one, you get to help think about their lives. You get to think about and think well about the melancholy of others. Because my desire from Psalm 88, as we learn from it and sit under it, is that we would all be more empathetic to the prisoner. The the prisoner who's in prison to their own despondency. Because my sense is that if we could all understand Psalm 88, we'll be able to look around and understand the nature of the prison and grow more tender. Because listen, you guys, Denver Presbyterian Church, we're a pretty simple church. There's not much to us. We don't even have a fancy building or anything like that. We don't have super fancy ministries. But what we can do, what we don't need any money for, what we don't need any resources for, what we don't need any volunteers for, what we can do is grow to be a more tender church. All you need is a sensitive heart. Because this church, so long as I lead us and shepherd us, we will not be a church that gives pat answers in the face of sad days. We're just not going to do that. And Psalm 88 is going to help us this morning. If you've heard me preach before, you'll know and remember that my sermons are usually organized. Here's here's how the sausage is made, everyone. Uh, You know, I'll... uh, read the text, I'll try to organize my sermon around one central thought, and then I'll have two or three points that I can extrapolate from the text to kind of show that thought. It's traditional expository preaching. This morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. What I'm going to do is um, I'm just going to outline the text for us, Psalm 88, so you can understand its logic and its flow. And then really, I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon just extrapolating four great truths that we get from Psalm 88. So let me just quickly move through just a quick outline. If you'll look in your Bibles. So verse 1 and 2 opens with a prayer. And it's an unanswered prayer, right? The, The psalmist is saying, I've been doing this all day. I've been doing this all night. And I have not heard back. Silence. And then verses 3 through 9, the psalmist, 
he's describing his pain. He's describing this prison he finds himself, and then he assigns the source of the pain. He explains who's behind it all. And then in verses 10 through 12, the singer formulates an argument against God because he's mad. And then verses 13 through 18, he continues in his prayer with no reply. And that is the logic and the movement of this sad, sad song. So let's move to these really important and beautiful truths that we need. The first truth, great truth is this, that God honoring faith is often ugly faith. I'm going to say that again. That God honoring faith is often ugly faith. Now, you guys have been with me long enough to know that I am prone to shed a few tears. You know, the older I get, uh, the more life I live, the more friends I've buried, the more children I've seen born. Sad things and beautiful things, they have a way, they just affect me a little bit more. Middle-aged dude, I guess. When I'm in front of you, I by and large can keep it together, by and large. It's not always like that. You know, when my family uh, accepted the call to move to Denver to be your pastor, um, our children had to say goodbye to the only home they ever knew, right, in Puerto Rico. So we packed up our house, and our house was empty, and my kids and Amanda and I, we all sat or went into the middle of our kitchen, and it was completely empty, and uh, we just prayed together in this empty house that was our home. And let me tell you, we ugly cried. I mean, we could not keep it together. I mean, snot all over my face, right? We were ugly crying. You know, like where it's so uncomfortable, you start making uncomfortable noises. And you just can't stop because the pain is so acute. I think some of you know what it means to ugly cry. In the same way that there is ugly crying... Right? Instead of like dignified crying, you know, just misty eyes or whatever, there's also ugly faith. You know, dignified faith is, um, is when life is going good and you pray a real bountiful prayer in front of a delicious meal and a table around good friends. And you pray. And that's, that's a real prayer. And that's real faith. No, don't, don't hear me wrong. That's real. All of that's real and true. But there is this other thing called ugly faith. And let me show you what I mean from this text. Jump with me immediately to verse 13. The psalmist says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Like, why is this happening? Why do you hide your face from me? I mean, I am praying to you, and I don't even see your face. He's like screaming out to God, like, look at me. Show me your face. Where are you, God? I mean, this is ugly. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Like, what are you doing, God? I am so mad. And I'm sad. And that might sound like complaining because it's raw. But listen, you guys, that is real faith. Because ugly faith is real faith. 
See, like when you and I pray beautiful and abundant prayers, they are real, but they don't take as much faith as this guy. I mean, he says in verse one, he says, I cry out. And by the way, that just, that's his way of saying praying. I'm praying right now, but crying is the best word he has. I cry out day and night. He's not stopping. And then in verse 16, he says, but what I get back are dreadful assaults surround me like a flood all day long. I mean, this guy keeps on praying and praying. No answers, just dreadful assaults. That's all he gets. And why would he keep praying? Because his faith is real. And for him to keep that up, because he is not seeing God's face, I don't know why, but he keeps praying. His prayer is messy, but it is insistent, and he does not stop praying. And he doesn't even know if anyone is on the other line listening. Of course, it is ugly faith. I mean, he's mad and sad, but it is real faith because ugly faith is real and it is God-honoring faith. Great truth number two. The darkness that we sometimes experience is both internal and external say that again, the darkness that we often will experience has its source both internally and externally. See, you look, when God, a little biblical theology, when God made man, Adam and Eve, he gave them a real physical body, and he also gave to them a real but immaterial and reasonable soul. And these two things go together. To be human means that you have a body and a soul, and they are inseparably tied to each other. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and with it, misery and brokenness. And because we are a body-soul nexus, what that means is, is that the darkness that we experience can be both material and immaterial, or internal and external. And that's exactly what we're seeing with this guy, with the singer. He acknowledges both. Look at verse 8. He says, you have caused my companions to shun me. So, so the psalmist is describing his circumstances. There's a kind of trauma, an external trauma has been per- perpetrated against him and it's created a dark, thick, unrelenting cloud in his life. It's an external trauma, but that's not the only kind of darkness that's described. Look at verse three. He says, for my soul is full of troubles. My soul is full of troubles. That is an Old Testament way of saying depression. Now listen real closely to me, you guys. Christians, brothers and sisters who love Jesus can be depressed. Some of you come from a tradition that has no respect or perhaps a very low view of psychiatrists or psychologists. And, and I get it. I know, I know there are abuses. I know that a humanist worldview produces a kind of misery. 
I know that sometimes people just throw pills at stuff. I know that. I'm not talking about all that. Of course there's an abuse. But an abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use because God has made us both physical and spiritual, body and soul. And the Bible is littered with examples of both. You have Job and Elijah, this singer, David. In the New Testament, you have Paul. You know, Paul, his thorn in his side, most Commentators think that his thorn in his side was this unrelenting melancholy that he lived with till the very end of his life. And even Jesus, Spurgeon, the great theologian, pastor, he says in the fullness of his humanity, even Jesus had a season of deep melancholy in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew that the very next day his father and God would abandon him as he hung on a cross. Even your Savior. And not just in the Bible, but great men of history. St. Augustine, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, who I just mentioned, Spurgeon, who lived with crippling depression most of his life. Debilitating depression. You know, I have friends who love Jesus, okay? You hear me? They love Jesus. But they'll report that they have this moment where they're like, they're fine. And for reasons they don't even quite understand, just in a moment's notice, this cloud will settle on them and they can't explain it. And it feels like God is abandoning them. And it gives them profound anxiety and even fear. And sometimes that cloud will come for just a moment and it'll release. But sometimes it's weeks and sometimes it's months. And they'll say, you know, I can't even explain it. Just I'll wake up and sometimes it just lifts. And they don't know why it comes and goes. For those brothers and sisters, I want us all to be really patient with them. The Bible is really realistic about these things, events and circumstances. They can trigger the cloud, the melancholy, but also it could just come from the inside. We don't know why. It's just this internal melancholy. And that's because we see even from the scriptures that the darkness that we experience can be both external or internal. Okay, great truth number three. It's really important. You can cause a double wound when you do not recognize that depression and melancholy is physically debilitating. You can cause a double wound on a sufferer when you do not recognize that depression and melancholy is physically inhibiting. I want you to think about it like this. Um, imagine you see uh, a friend from work. Uh, she's in a car accident. And she breaks both of her arms and she breaks both of her legs. Now, she's fine otherwise, but she has these terrible casts 
on her arms and her legs. Now you go into work and simply by looking at her, you know it's not business as usual, right? Right, she can't do what she was doing before the accident. It's not, you know, be like, hey, type me out this email or take some notes for me. She can't. She's got casts on her arms and her legs. She's broken. And, and when we see a cast, we, we accept it, right? And in fact, it, dare I say, it even awakes our compassion, doesn't it? But what about a broken heart? What about a broken heart when there's no cast? C.S. Lewis, he says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. And the psalmist is so aware of this. Look at the second part of verse 8. He says, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Like, I so appreciate how the psalmist, he connects his sorrow and his depression to his eyes. He's like, my eyes don't even work the way they're supposed to. Don't grow impatient with our loved ones who are not as productive as you are. And in fact, by insisting it, you can inflict a double wound. They're suffering the, the, the darkness of their melancholy, and they're suffering by not being enough for you. And so they think, hey, maybe they just need to buck up. Pray more. It's like a double wound. And listen to me, if you are in this place, if you're the sufferer, if you're the singer, and you're not 100%, I want you to remember that Jesus, in the fullness of his humanity, he didn't, he didn't speak English. He was not a Westerner. And he is not impressed by your productivity. And so if you're suffering, I want you to be kind. Just be kind to yourself. The Lord's not mad at you. He's not. And if you're in that sad and dark place, if you just got out of bed and fed your children, we're just going to celebrate that. Just the little things. You don't, you don't have to be the president of the city council, manage a small business, volunteer at church, have four-hour devotionals, teach your children Latin and Greek, and then read Moby Dick before they go to bed. You don't, you don't have to do that. For some people who are in this place, just brushing their teeth is a win. And we're just going to celebrate that. You know, if you're in a hospital and you just had surgery, maybe you had a, an anesthetic or something, or maybe they did some surgery or GI surgery or something like that, and you're recovering from the surgery, you know how often the doctors and the nurses will change your diet and they're like, hey, no solid foods. You just have to, your stomach doesn't, your system doesn't work yet. You just, you can only have water for a little bit. You can only eat 
ice chips, right? You have to, you have to change your diet, something very small. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Maybe y'all have been there? Well, when you're in recovery from depression, you need to just change your spiritual diet a little. Maybe asking someone to do a Bible study with you about suffering is just a little too much. And maybe you just, maybe just short, little small prayers is all they can get out. Maybe because they're experiencing anxiety and their chest is tight. They can't even get enough air to, to pray a long Puritan prayer. And they can only sustain a short sentence. They say, Lord, you are the air that I breathe. You are all that I need. Maybe that's all I can say. Lord, you are the air that I breathe. You are what I need. And then they're just kind of moving into that Romans 8 territory of groans too deep for words. And that's all they got. Would you just lower your expectations for our loved ones? Because the darkness is often physically debilitating. And it's important to see these small acts of faithfulness as important and God-glorifying. You know, for the sufferer, the goal is not to be 110%. Short prayers, right? Maybe just taking a shower that day. That's a win. Maybe going to church. You don't feel like it, but you do it. And you're just with your people. And we, we're just going to celebrate that. And for the helper, you got to see that a broken spirit is worse than broken bones, even if you don't see a cast. So please don't cause a double wound by your impatience. All right, the last one, great truth number four. There is no comfort by saying that God has not designed your darkness. Let me say this again. There is no comfort to be found by saying that God has not designed your darkness. A few years ago, uh, there's this, a real popular book um, by this guy named Rabbi Harold Kushner. He writes a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was all the rage for a bit. It was like a New York Times bestseller. Honestly, it's a little bit of a superficial book. It's kind of like the shack. I call it kind of like shack theology. It's written by well-intentioned people, I'm sure, but it's not really all that helpful. And if Rabbi Kushner were with the psalmist, the author here, he would have said, hey, listen, you're a good person. God has nothing to do with this. He would love to help you, but he can't because he's not in control. And if you will just come to terms with the fact that God is not in control of everything, you will actually find relief in that. And the psalmist would not be amused or relieved by that logic. That's never the logic of the Bible. For instance, in the book of Job, he never entertained the idea that God was not absolutely in control. I mean, none of it felt good, 
right? It was awful. If you read it, it's awful. And the reason why Job wrestles, the reason why the psalmist is showing us this ugly faith and wrestling is because he knows that God's in control and none of this makes any sense. None of it makes any sense. Like, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Look look, look with me. As he's talking to God, look what he says, verse 6. You have put me in the depth of the pit. Verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. 14. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 16, your your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and friend to shun me. And God, you're nowhere to be found. And I'm left with one friend. Darkness is my closest companion. That's what we see with Job, right? He is this righteous sufferer. See, Satan, right? Y'all remember the story? Satan says to God, he says, the only reason why Job worships you, why he's such a good dude, is because you give him stuff. Right? Of course he's going to worship you. If you've given him this, like, really blessed life, you take all of that away, then let's see what happens. That's how it starts, right? You remember this? God designed it. It was all taken away. Job suffered And it was awful. Like, it was awful. It's like literally everyone's worst nightmare. And Job had some really important and angry questions for God. Like, what in the world are you doing? And God never told him what he was doing. But in the end, it said that Job never stopped being faithful. Now, Job's friends, they were quite unhelpful, right? They were the harmful helpers, right? His friends were like, Job, what'd you do? I mean, there must be some hidden sin. You need to repent of these, of your secret sins. I mean, or buck up. It's you know, it's really time to get over this. And Job's friends said some really biblical things in all the wrong ways. And here are ways that we can be harmful helpers. These are ways when our friends are in, the, are in a tough spot and a sadness, we're harmful when we assume that there's sin. Like there must be some secret sin. Don't do that. Or maybe when they're, having, they're struggling, I mean, you just assume that they just have weak faith. Their faith just... It's not as strong as yours. Don't do that. Don't do that. Or saying things like, you know, God can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, don't say that. Like, they're, they're in a dark place and they're not coming out of it. And you're just heaping shame on them. Like, just weep with those who are weeping. Why is that so hard for us to do? Just weep with those who are weeping. We will be a church that weeps. Like, don't rob our brothers and sisters of their tears. We're not going to give pat answers, you guys, here. We're just going to weep. We're going to join them in their tears. That's what we're going to do. So I've said this morning, 
as we've studied this text, that God-honoring faith is often ugly faith. That the darkness that we experience is at times both internal and external. That you can cause a double wound when you don't recognize that melancholy and depression is physically inhibiting. And lastly, that there is no comfort by saying that God has not designed this dark day. That doesn't bring the relief you think it'll bring. And so this psalm has no, you know, no explicit hope. From top to bottom, it's just sad and it's messy. But it really is a kindness. It really is a kindness of God to give us words for our misery. Because, because if you're the sufferer, if you feel like God has abandoned you, I mean, you're saying, God, I love you, like I trust you, I, I believe your promises, but I don't see your face. If that is you, then when you read these words in Psalm 88, you know that you're not the first person to arrive in that valley, right? Others have been there too, and you're not alone. And in fact, by the Lord giving us these holy words, God is even dignifying your melancholy and your experience. He's not afraid of your tears or of your ugly faith. But I do, if you'll allow me, I'll bring us to one implicit, it's implicit hope that's present in the psalm. So the suffering psalmist, he's in this pit, right? And he's, there's no way out. And it appears that this is actually going to be the case until the, for the rest of his life. His life might be terminally sad. But nevertheless, when he calls upon the Lord in verse 1, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation. That's what he calls God. Now, there is, there's no salvation present in this psalm. The song ends, and the rescue never comes. And so why does he insist on that title, God of my salvation? And here's why. He believes that God is accomplishing something for him in his suffering and perhaps even in his death. And what could this be? I'll go back and cite C.S. Lewis one more time. Listen to these important words. He says, Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for a moment, that God who made these deserving people may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed, that all this must fall from them in the end, and if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore God troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families stands between them and the recognition of their need. And he makes that life less sweet to them. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. And he will have us even, when, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him 
because there is now nothing better to be had. God has this redemptive, if even salvific, use in his unyielding melancholy and darkness. What is it? Well, does the psalm tell us? Implicitly. And let me just explain, and this is where I'll, I'll end it. If you'll remember, I gave us the, the quick outline. Remember the quick outline? And if you'll remember that in verses 10 through 12, the singer actually formulates an argument against God. So the psalmist is pitting God's own desires against him, right? He's like, how am I supposed to worship you if I'm dead? You want me to worship you, right? But I'm dying. Like, I'm almost in the grave, and you're putting me there. Like, how can, how can your love be proclaimed if I'm in the grave, right? That's his logic. He's essentially saying, God, you really need to rethink all of this. I think you got this wrong. And I want, you to, I want to show you how God got this right. So I'm going to quickly work through verses 10 through 12. And I'm just going to respond to those accusations from the gracious perspective of God. Verse 10. Lord, he asks, do you work wonders from the dead? As a matter of fact, I will. Yes, the Lord says. Will the departed rise and praise you? As a matter of fact, they do. Verse 11. Your steadfast love, is it declared in the grave? Yes. In my own son's grave, love is declared. Will your faithfulness be shown in Abaddon, which means in the abyss, in the depths of hell? Yes, it will. My son will endure hell for you. Twelve, are your wonders made known in the darkness? Oh, yes, they will. In the deepest depths of hell, the darkness will make the gospel shine brighter. Will your righteousness be known in the land of forgetfulness? Oh, yes, it will. Everyone will remember and see, and every knee will bend, and every person will bow. See, the psalmist wrote those questions because he couldn't, he could not possibly see what God could do with darkness. And indeed, God saved the whole world through darkness coming upon his son. He thought that there were no good answers because he could not see them or think of them. And here's the implicit grace. There are answers, but you and I will likely never know them, not on this side of heaven. But it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means that you don't know them. And God never intends for you to know them. So until then, until faith becomes sight, we have this um for our misery. Spurgeon, who I mentioned earlier, suffered with crippling depression. He notes that, you know, when a person is in that deep sadness, when a person is terrified because it feels like God is abandoning them, abandoning us into this darkness, 
the thought of Jesus on the cross, it doesn't bring us comfort. It just makes us feel like guilt. And then the, the thought of Jesus being resurrected, that, that doesn't bring us comfort either. It just feels like God's even further away now. But the thought of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane alone, feeling abandoned in his melancholy, in that darkness, in that moment, the sufferer says, Jesus knows me. Like, Jesus sees me like he knows me. Jesus is in that place, and when he's in that place, he seems most real to us. Because Jesus got to that darkness before you and I did. You hear that? He got to that darkness. And so let me, be, let me end as I begun. The God of this universe who designed you and made you, he is not clumsy. He is not superficial. He is never surprised and he is not capricious. He is not foolish. He is wise. He is perfectly wise. And that very God loves you. Amen? Amen.